Hey y'all, welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I have the wonderful privilege of chatting with author Monica West. Her stunning debut novel, Revival Season, was recently published by Simon & Schuster, and believe me when I say that this book is truly magical, and I'm definitely one of millions who agree. Spellbinding debut, that's from the Washington Post. Invigorating novel, that's from the New York Times. Oh, and Barnes & Noble included the book as a must-read for May, just to name a few. Revival Season is all of those things and more. When you pick up this book and join 15-year-old Miriam Horton on her physical and spiritual journeys, you'll quickly understand the excitement. Miriam and her family pack up every summer and travel through small southern towns for revival season, the time when Reverend Samuel Horton, Miriam's father, holds massive healing services for local communities. Whether people need healing for ailments and disease or just want to witness Reverend Horton's powers, each revival season is one to be remembered. And the memories aren't always good ones. When Miriam witnesses a shocking act of violence after a healing session, she calls into question everything that she's known to be true. Her confusion only grows as she begins to discover her own ability to heal. But this ability and power is denied to women, right? Throughout the book, Miriam struggles with her special ability, forcing her to decide between her religion, family, and power. Should she disobey her father and potentially save others, or should she deny her true gifts as a healer and woman? This book is about faith, feminism, and how our natural abilities can help us build strong, sturdy foundations for the future, even when our belief system is crumbling around us. I loved Revival Season and my chat with Monica so much. We talked about the book's beautifully complex characters, the relationship between mother and daughter, the violence and anger that occurs throughout the book, and what it means to have a special healing power. I really hope you love the episode. I am beyond excited to be here today with the one and only Monica West. How are you today? How is everything going? I am doing really well. I'm excited to be here. Everything is going well. So I'm excited to talk to you. I'm excited too. And congratulations on all that is happening with Revival Season. It is genuinely one of the most stunning debuts I have ever ever read and I will go on here and say that it is one of my favorite books of 2021. I'm so happy to see publications loving it. I'm so happy to see Barnes & Noble making it one of their May's must read, which is fantastic. I would really just love to know how you're feeling about it all. It's an interesting mix of I am excited. That's the dominant emotion is excitement. But then the other two, there's anxiety in there. And then there's also a lot of doubt. So all those things are kind of existing in my brain at the same time. It's hard to be prepared for what's going to happen. And so the whole time I've been writing, it's been personal. It's me. It's this book. It's a story. It's this narrative. And now that it's other people have it in their hands and it's a thing. And that's a different experience of this thing that's been private for so long. I've been writing this book for nine years, you know, and I'm not an anxious person, but it just feels like what's going to happen. What what are people going to say? What's going to come up? But the prevailing emotion is excitement. And the thing I've been trying to do is just stay really present as opposed to thinking about, okay, what's coming down the pipe. It's this idea of right now, right here, here's what I'm doing. Here's what's happening with this book. And that just kept me really grounded. That is such a great way to be. And it really kind of makes me think about the themes that are woven so beautifully within your book. Obviously faith and going to church are big themes in your book. And I've had the 
immense privilege of having an ARC. I got to read Revival Season early. So I would love for you to give a brief synopsis of what Revival Season is about. So Revival Season is the story of 15-year-old Miriam Porton, who is the oldest daughter of a famous faith healer and a revival pastor. His name is Samuel Horton. Um, Miriam's the oldest of three children. And over the course of one summer, the family kind of gets in their old minivan and they go across the South in the summer and um, these revivals to heal the sick and to preach and to kind of convert believers. And over the course of one summer, Miriam witnesses something pretty startling and striking and violent from her father that calls back an experience from the previous year. And in that moment for Miriam, all the things that she's thought to be true about her father, um, that she's thought to be true about her faith, kind of start to fall apart. When they arrive back in Texas, which is where the family's from, Miriam discovers that she has an ability to do some things that her father has said explicitly aren't things that women can do in the church. And Miriam is then kind of terrified with what to do with this newfound power that she has, has to decide if she wants to act on it or stay obedient to what her father says and what her father says the Bible teaches. And it forces her to come in conflict with her family and with her faith and just either to step into this power and to distance herself from her family or to kind of be the good submissive Christian that her family wants her to be. It's about that conflict and about stepping into your faith. And so it's about feminism and faith and doubt and disillusionment and family and patriarchy all in one book. Just a couple of, you know, important (laughs) themes, the best of all worlds and just put it into one beautiful book. And then we just literally have everything. We have all the feelings and and that (laughs) definitely was the case. I remember messaging you on Instagram when I was reading it and I was just like, Monica, oh my God, this is incredible. (laughs) And I want to say, you know, on the surface, the cover is stunning. I always love to ask this. I'm always so intrigued by the title selection. I would really love for you to just kind of talk through how you came up with this title, you know, why this title and just how important it is for readers who pick up your book to like be instantly taken by that title. So I started the book in 2012 and I didn't have a title and I was just writing. Um, And actually what's interesting about this book is the beginning has stayed the beginning. Um, Sometimes with an edits, things kind of shift around, whatever. The beginning, gosh, first few pages are pretty close to what they were nine years ago when I started. So much of everything else has changed, but the first few pages have stayed pretty close to being the same. And the title I did, I didn't have one initially. And then I went in 2012, that same summer, I had just a chapter um, or a couple chapters of this book. And I went to the Squaw Valley Community of Writers in Lake Tahoe. Um, it was my second time attending that conference. And I was in a group with people. And I think initially it was going to be Traveling Mercies. And someone said, oh, that was um, an Annie Dillard book. And so I couldn't do that. And so I was like, okay, okay, I can't do Traveling Mercies. And someone in that group said, what if you called it Revival Season? And so that was really early in. So I said, oh, I love that. And so the title stayed the same. But the thing that I, I love about the title is that It's about the summer, and so it's about what the Hortons do. It's their business, so to speak. But then it's also about Miriam, and it's about this idea for Miriam. So it works both ways in terms of being actually about this religious practice and this ritual, and it's also about the growth and development of our protagonist, which is her revival, her coming into herself differently than what her dad's doing in tents, but it's her realization spiritually, as a woman, as a person of faith, how she has a revival of her own that's different from her father. So Revival Season kind of works on both fronts. This is a good segue into just me being able to say to you how much I adore Miriam. I mean, she has had to grow up so quickly, not just 
because she has two younger siblings and not just because of her role in the church and, and within her father's community as well, but I just found her very wise beyond her years. Do you feel that because Miriam's kind of growing up a little bit maybe before her time as a 15-year-old is why her mother kind of gravitates towards her daughter because she kind of sees her as an equal? Joanne is, she's abused. She's an abuse victim. And I think one of the things I kind of try to capture in the book is her spiritual life and her love for her husband have, have been merged forever. And so when she became a Christian, that's when she met her husband and those two things have been intermingled. And she knows her life with her father. She knows that that was with her own father, which was something that she wanted to get away from. And then she meets a man who is not too different from her father that she discovers later. And so I think that for Joanne, maybe some redemption a bit in Miriam. Um, there's a way that she can see Miriam's not her in that way. And it's her oldest child. You know, Caleb is much more Reverend Horton's son. And so this idea of that's where their time is spending. And then their youngest daughter, Hannah, has cerebral palsy and is nonverbal. And that's where she puts her energy. And the idea that as the book is progressing, there are real rifts in the marriage. And her mom sees her as, and her mom is also so isolated, right? Her mom is separated from her family. She's in this house. She's homeschooling all these kids. And she doesn't have an outlet. And so Miriam becomes then her outlet and Miriam and her mother have a really wonderful bond. But then Miriam also sees her mom for who her mom is, which is, you know, this over this over the course of the year, Miriam sees her parents for as people and not as these people that we raise to be kind of unable to make mistakes and infallible. Miriam sees her parents as fallible and flawed and human and broken. And her mom is not exempt from that. Um, and yet there's still so much tenderness between the two of them. Because I think they both feel, they both bear the brunt of what it feels like to be female in this household and to be at the mercy of their pretty violent father slash husband that Miriam is now seeing for the first time. And jo and we get the sense as readers, we, I hope that readers get the sense that Joanne has known this for a while. You've touched on so many interesting points. I wanted to kind of go into the the questioning of things. So as children, you know, whether you grow up with a single parent, you grew up with both parents, however your household dynamic is, as a child, you are more or less taught not to question older people in your life. You know, they, they know best, they're there to look out for you. And then I genuinely have been curious and interested in this for some time. And I'm sure it's different for everyone depending on their situation, but at what age do we kind of elect ourselves as being able to make those decisions for ourselves? And I think 15 is a good age to start doing that in the sense that you have been a teenager for a couple of years now. You're seeing your, your body change. You're seeing your mind change. You're starting to make up opinions for yourself that may be different than what your parents have. But what I think is really interesting is how, and, and I'll use this term multiple times, so apologies in advance, but how beautifully woven what Miriam believes is, is her faith, like what exists in that realm, and questioning that part of her life, but also questioning her role as the elder daughter questioning her role as her mother's helper so she's very hands-on with Hannah I really would love to know just because of how dynamic and how complex Miriam is when you were creating Miriam's story when you kind of were mapping out her journey how much room did you leave for flexibility and fluidity where you might go back in and add a few things and what did you kind of know off the bat that you really wanted for her so off the bat, I knew that Miriam was going to be defiant in some way. The way the book came to me is I started with a picture. And so I saw a picture in my head of a van. For me, the way books happen and the way they've happened so far for me is I see something and I keep seeing it. 
And so when I keep seeing it, then I think, okay, there's a story there. I have to write my way through the image. And the image I kept seeing was this van going down the highway, moving really quickly. And that actually is an image in the opening pages of the book. The family, you know, we see them head to America's Georgia at the beginning of the book. From the beginning, I knew that Miriam was going to be at odds in this van. That's this claustrophobic space. There are nomads in the summer that she was going to be at odds with the kind of patriarchal figure in her life, which is her father. And so I knew she was going to be defiant. I knew that she was going to be outspoken. And I knew that she was going to have lots of questions because so much about that age because I've been teaching high school forever. And that age is such an age of differentiation where we say, I am not my parents in this specific way. And we're doing it in really small ways. You know, as we grow up, as you're in middle school, that's kind of when you don't want your parents to kind of kiss you when you, when they leave you to school. And, you know, and, and this is the place where you have ideas and opinions and you're seeing the world and it may be how your parents see it. It may be really differently than how your parents see it. So I knew that those things, the, 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 this idea of kind of being defiant, this idea of starting to kind of just really observe. She's always been really observant in my head. From the beginning, she's been devoted and loyal. And one of the things about healing that I think I was trying to kind of impart is the idea that at the beginning of the book, Miriam is the healer in lots of ways. Miriam is taking care of Hannah. Miriam is unapologetically doing that work that is so undervalued and underappreciated. It's seen as, well, this is what you're supposed to do when you have a, a sister who, you know, can't do for herself. And for Miriam in the beginning chapters, while the father is this very public idea of what healing is, Miriam is in the quiet, private ways, bathing Hannah, taking care of Hannah, putting Hannah to bed, feeding her in the mornings, getting her dressed. And that's the healing work in the beginning. And so I've, I've known that too. I've known that she's been really loyal and devoted to her family. What I left room for and what I really worked on, and however, I can't even count the number of revisions of this book. In the newest revisions, my editor and I were talking a lot about once Miriam takes a step into her own power, where's the room for pride in that? Where's the room for her to be her to be a lot like her dad in that? Where her father is so consumed by the things he can do that he loses sight of these other things. And Miriam gets some of that at the end. So that I left room for that. I didn't anticipate that when I was originally writing. I think Miriam might've been too flat when I was originally writing. Room for that messiness. I left a ton of room for the relationship with her mom to be more complex. Um, in the beginning, I thought that they were just kind of confidants and I wanted Miriam to also have room for anger. She's always had room for anger at her dad. I didn't always leave room for anger with her mom. And I, and I, and I developed a lot more of that at the end and a lot of questioning, about, why are you doing this? Or why are you doing this to us? You know, this is bad. Why are we still here? And kind of blaming her mom for a lot of the stuff that has been inflicted on them. And that a lot of that confusion, I left a lot of room for. And then I think also in, in the healings that happen later in the book, Miriam doesn't know. And she's terrified. As I was writing those scenes and reworking those scenes a million times, I left room for Miriam to not just be oh, this is this thing that I step into, but this is a thing that can change everything. And I am terrified of it. And I don't even know if I want it. And I don't know if I use it, what that means and how it's changing everything. And she's terrified. The anger that Miriam has for her mother in several scenes in the book, that was such a surprise for me because you did such a great job of having us believe that her mother could do no wrong. And what's great as well is that the relationship that Miriam has with her father and the relationship she has with her mother are two vastly different relationships. And I think that is great because sometimes we can see, especially if you are raised in a household with two parents, you can see them as a package deal mm -hmm. and you can kind of see them as an entity that come together. And you yeah. don't really question that. It's mom and dad. It's mom and pa. Mm -hmm. And you 
often forget that they have their own separate interests, their own separate lives. But again, the anger feeling was such a surprise. And it might sound strange to say this, but a welcome surprise because where I personally as a reader find the most beauty is in the flaws and in the layers and there was just so many beautiful layers to unweave and unwrap in your book and one of the things I also found really interesting as well they might seem small and I say insignificant in terms of like they're not the bigger parts of the book but the small beautiful moments where her mother and her are reading a Toni Morrison book together, you know, Song of Solomon. They're sitting in bed reading this book. It then makes the moments of tragedy that much more harder to read, heartbreaking. And I'll be honest, there were moments that were very hard to read, but I I knew how essential and important they were to the storyline, to the book, to you, to, to everything. And one of the things that I pulled out, and you touched on it a little bit earlier about the work behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And I would love to explore that a little bit more, but I want to talk about motherhood Mm -hmm. and what exists as motherhood. Motherhood is such a fluid concept. You don't have to be a biological mother to be a mother. You don't have to even be related to be a mother to someone. And there's just this really strong theme of birth and rebirth and how we process loss and I would love for you to talk about this theme of motherhood this theme of loss and this theme of being a child motherhood was really important to me in this book from the beginning for Joanna's being a mother and being a wife it is kind of being what Samuel needs and then sometimes that comes at the expense of being what her kids need and so um so Miriam then assumes a lot of that role that maternal role for Hannah in particular Um, So it's about motherhood in those ways. It's about the ways that we then see our own mothers. And so that was important. And the thing too that you're bringing up, which which I think is spot on, is about not just the ways that we see birth and death, but also Miriam is present at them. This idea that Miriam is in the ways that her family is kind of grooming her to be this or that they've involved her in these things that Miriam's been present at Hannah's birth before um, they had to go to the hospital. And so, and Miriam is there when Hannah's born, Miriam's there when Isaiah's born, Um, Miriam's there when Isaac is born, and Miriam's actually a huge part of Isaac's birth. And so it was important to me in the book because the church finds ways to flatten um, women's roles as to being you're a wife and you're a mother, and those are the two things that you can be. And Miriam sees that. You know, she sees that what's expected of the ways that people can find agency and, you know, the ways that women are are allowed to have agency in those two very specific realms. And she wrestles with that. And as much as though she then also really honors the, the maternal role that she has for Hannah, like she loves Hannah. She loves, she understands Hannah. She is Hannah's person. And, but she balks against this idea of, I can't be this other thing. I can't be a healer, but I have to be, I would have to be a mother and a wife. There's beauty in that too. There's beauty in the motherhood that's there. There's tragedy in the motherhood that we see. She kind of has a confidant in Mrs. K, the woman who is kind of in the church, but also in the world, she's delivering babies in other parts. The book is about how we mother um, in some ways too, and how we are mothered. And that's a big thing that Miriam then calls into question about how we are mothered um, as the book goes on. For Miriam, like you said, she does see her mother. Her mother is very, in her own way, obedient and a great mother. But she also calls into question her own beliefs and her own faith as as a woman, Um, never mind a mother and a wife. I feel like Miriam, she is really starting to find her own footing, not just when she discovers about her healing powers, but just also, like you said, taking on this role with Hannah. And there is a a very powerful, and I'm I'm not gonna give it away, um, but there's a very powerful scene with Hannah on stage 
And as you said, Hannah only knows love. So in that moment when she was not being loved, she called everything into question herself and she didn't have the voice to speak out about it. And that to me was also so powerful is that Hannah did have a voice, but she had her own voice and she communicated with her family in different ways. And it is very much like you said about how the work behind the scenes. So there are so many women around the world doing jobs, doing work behind the scenes that is never going to be newsworthy. It's never going to be celebrated in public, but it's about celebrating those moments. Again, the roles in which women play to be caregivers. I would love to know in your opinion, obviously you created this world that we're so privileged to be a part of and you've gifted us this. If Miriam wasn't the eldest child, do you feel that she would have gravitated towards that caregiver role in the way that she did? That is such a great question because Miriam was not the oldest until late, actually. So by the time I sold the book in 2019, Miriam was the middle. And then I had four rounds of revision. Um, Miriam became the oldest, I think, in my, my second revision, either first or second revision. So latish in the process. But in my initial conception, Miriam was the, was the middle. And Caleb was older. And I thought that what that allowed for me to do was the obvious thing. It's the oldest son, heir apparent to the father, whatever, whatever. It's Miriam who is then kind of ignored because she's the middle and because it's like, okay, this is about Caleb. And no one expects the men in this family to do any of the unseen work of service, the the things that keep the church and the family afloat that are invisible, but so important and never, ever acknowledged. And so Miriam was going to do that work with Hannah when Caleb was older and Miriam was younger. And then I think in revision two, my editor, whose name is Karina said, what if Miriam was the oldest? It broke everything open for me in the sense of it shifts all this thing about Caleb still being the focus, but what does that mean when he's younger than you, right? What does that mean when he is, when the dynamic shifts? You should be the heir apparent in lots of ways. You are the oldest, but you're overlooked. And so I thought that that worked really well for the book. It worked really well thinking also about the story of Miriam and Moses and that kind of Miriam's namesake. So she became the caretaker of everyone. And that oldest role, less of Caleb because she sees Caleb kind of venturing away and she doesn't want Caleb to be like her father. And I think by the end, Caleb redeems himself. And we see that Caleb is not going to be like his dad. If there are sides, he's siding more with his mother and he's siding more with Miriam a little bit more than his dad than he did at the beginning. But I think that's a great question. I think that the book became more complex when Miriam became the oldest because it would be so easy for her to be overlooked as the middle it's less so for her to be overlooked as the oldest. And here's what's really interesting about that as well, and that literally blows my mind that she could have been the middle. But here's the interesting thing. If Caleb had been the eldest, it's our job as the oldest to question things, to challenge things, because we have to see what the road looks like before we allow our little ducklings to even kind of cross, right? And so if Caleb had been the oldest, he probably would have been less inclined to question the status quo because of his heir apparent path. And Miriam probably would have been a bit more subservient, a bit more submissive. Yeah, like that just absolutely blows my mind. Because when Miriam discovers that she has these powers, these healing powers, it calls into question everything. And I just can't see Caleb having the same thing. Like, And I know that there's these beautiful notes of feminism and faith. We don't want to give men one more thing. So. It works so much better because he also can't dismiss her. Like, he dismissed her so much in the early drafts. And when I had to make her older, 
there's still some dismissiveness what will you like I'm like that's his big sister he can dismiss her a little bit but not all the way and in the early drafts a lot of it was a lot of his dismissing her and ignoring her and like, you kind of can't ignore her when she's older than you and it is again and i know this was done on purpose but i, I want to comment on again just how beautiful it is the roles in which women play in the bible itself and i loved the bible references so i admittedly do not know the bible intimately enough to be able to like just call out a verse or a scripture or anything like that but i did pick up on the little golden tickets if you will that you that you gave us so one of my favorites was the moment that Miriam looks back at the revival tent as they're driving away. It's gone horribly wrong this part of the revival season. She looks back at the revival tent, very much like Lot's wife looks back at Sodom and Gomorrah and turns into this pillar of salt. I feel like women are referred to as pillars of strength, which yeah. is the complete opposite of what happened to Lot's wife. She was not revered for her strength of actually daring to look back. And that's just so fascinating to me. And then one of the other references that I love is Deuteronomy. I for eye, tooth for teeth. And you talk about how Miriam was thinking back on believing on such trivial things like the tooth fairy. And I would love for you to tell us about how you look to the Bible and you use that as you were doing your writing. A lot of the book is about naming and names. What does your name mean biblically? And so I think for Miriam in particular, what it means for Miriam and Moses and what it means to be this, this idea of being overlooked because people talk about Moses, they don't talk about Miriam, right? Like Moses gets the spotlight while Miriam has done the work to get, you know? And so I think for me, the name Miriam was a really important name for her to have, um, a really important name biblically and a really important name that kind of then plans out or kind of plays out their relationship. One name that I also paid particular attention to, both Isaiah, because it's, it's Miriam's favorite book in the Bible, and because it's the name of the child who's stillborn, um, and what that means for Miriam in terms of this book about Isaiah being a book so much about faith and what it means for the loss of faith of this family, not the loss of faith. It does seem like Isaiah's uh, stillbirth breaks Joanna in some specific ways too. And she shifts in some ways as a result of that. Samuel, Caleb, um, Hannah. And then when Isaac is born, um, Miriam gets to name him Isaac. And what it means for her not only to be there at the birth when her father is not, to pick a name for him that feels essential. In the book, I use the book, The Miracle and the Reward for Their Belief. And so this idea that into this family that is broken and that is still breaking in ways. Miriam thinks about the idea that she is excited to have another sibling. She, she's disappointed that it's a boy because she knows that's what her father wants. He wants another boy. And Miriam and Hannah aren't what he wants. And Miriam getting to name him Isaac, what that is meant. And then also that in that family, the only one with the non-biblical name is Joanne. And because it's this idea of who she was, in her previous life, it's Joanne, Yolanda, and Claudia are her sisters. And we know a little bit about her life before. You're absolutely right that she does not look back a lot. And I think that what she sees when she looks back is pain of her childhood and doesn't want to, because it's not through Joanne's eyes, it's through Miriam's. We just see, and then we see Miriam craving that, you know, when they're at the pool, um, when they're on, when they leave the tent and they have to move out of the house and they're at the pool and she's asking her mom for stories about that when they're reading Song of Solomon in bed. One of my favorite scenes to write was the scene when she finds her mom dancing downstairs. Miriam's craving these details about, give me breadcrumbs of what your life was like before this because I see more in you than is here. And I think that the name Joanne being the one non-biblical name in the book, I, I made that intentional. Even though Samuel wasn't religious when he grew up, he just kind of fell into this role after being this boxer and it, it feels a little bit like he's a flim flam man in some way. So it kind of fits that. And Joanne of, of the family being the one that doesn't have the biblical name and the one who has secular roots in, in those ways. And Samuel becomes someone different 
but the name is still the same. The name is still a name that's not biblical. So I thought a lot about that. There's a lot of Mary Magdalene stuff when I'm thinking about Miriam's work, like Miriam's work with Hannah. And again, this idea of women's service and the way that we expect women to serve and the way that we allow women to serve. But when Miriam wants to step into more roles of service, how she is not allowed to do that. So I think a lot about Mary Magdalene and a lot about the relationship with Jesus, but then also her relationship to this very overlooked act that is also considered to be so holy, right? Like the washing of feet. And that's a lot of that, the Mary Magdalene story was in a lot of the bathing of Hannah. And so I could go on and on. Yeah, we want you to go on and on. So that's totally fine. Like just keep writing as many books as possible, Monica, honestly, just as often as you can. And I also was just thinking about the scene there in North Carolina. Samuel walks out to the beach and he just kind of falls to his knees. And that makes me think of one of my favorite, I actually don't know if it's in the Bible, but I just always loved it about the footprints when you didn't see a second set of footprints, it's because I carried you and that made me think of that. But you're absolutely right. I genuinely think as well, like when Miriam comes down and hears her mother dancing and getting those, as you said, breadcrumbs of what Joanne's life was before the church and before she even knew her, that kind of makes me think of their journey together. So we have Joanne's life before children, you know, before her family. Then you have what Miriam knows as her existence in this point in time. But also I feel like she's saying to me, feed me these breadcrumbs so I can know what I have to look forward to as a woman as I get older. But it is very interesting. And I want to stay on Joanne because again, I I love her. And what I want to talk about is she's just this incredible woman. She is this pillar of strength. But there's one particular moment that I keep thinking about and I, I was so looking forward to talking to you about it. When she leaves her diner job and she takes off the name tag Joanne and essentially flees with Samuel into this life. That is so powerful and so symbolic because it is her her removing her existence as Joanne and becoming Samuel's wife and becoming Reverend Horton's wife, the mother of her children. And I just wanted to know how we sometimes take off our name tag figuratively and symbolically to take on these new roles and responsibilities. And I would love for you to talk through that. Yeah, I love this idea of how in marriage, the people whose names change, like women's names change, right? Your last name changes. And for Joanne, then this idea of who I was before, I can no longer be her. If I'm going to be with this man, but that like led up to her life, she was 17 when she met him and she sheds this entire identity to be with Samuel and to be his wife, to then be the mother of his children. And women's identities are expected to just kind of fall away. And I know identity is way more than a name, but the idea of even changing of a name, which is, hey, this person who I was before is gone. I'm united with you and I have your name, even though whatever the years I've had of my name, that kind of gets erased in favor of now with you and this unit and we are this thing. What does that do kind of psychically to a person to then say who I was for all these years Yes, you still are who you are, but you are also someone really different. I don't think she knew at the time that she was shedding it and what she was going to be doing and that she was going to be with this man and on this whole thing that she was like on this ride that she was going to stay on for the next however many years with kids and everything. I don't think she knew it then, but I think that the book nods to it, this idea of I can no longer be myself to be with you. She can't be with her siblings anymore because they're not part of the fold. They're not part of the flock. She can't see her own family. So she's pretty much gone. She's taken from this life that she knows. She's put into this new life that she signs up for, but doesn't really know a ton about. 
and it becomes Ma instead of Joanne. And that identity gets completely erased and she becomes a wife and a mom. So we haven't really given a lot of airtime to Reverend Horton. Some of that is a little intentional. Some of it's not. But I feel like Reverend Horton, although he didn't change at all the entire book, I did find myself hating him less and less. Sorry, I shouldn't say hate. You shouldn't hate anyone. But I did find myself disliking him intensely less and less as those moments of vulnerability came out. The moment where he's in his office and he just has his head in his hands and Miriam comes in and she tries to speak to him and he doesn't lash out at her. He just stays in that silence and he stays in that moment. The moment on the beach where he literally is just falling to his knees or you know standing and just having that moment for himself. And the anger and the physical violence that comes through from Samuel. Ma and Caleb take a different approach to this physical violence and this anger than Miriam does. And sadly, Hannah, we know that she is uncomfortable in lots of ways, but we don't obviously hear from her in terms of how she's feeling about it. And when Miriam witnesses the attacks, it snaps her into a reality that she couldn't even have foreseen even if she wanted to. And it was a very quick snap. It wasn't a... I'm going to stew on this and then maybe I'll go and forgive my father a little bit later. It was very much like, I have witnessed this. You're supposed to be a healer. You have just harmed someone. How can I ever think of you in the same way again? That's where the reader and Miriam meet up. We very much take on the same opinion. How can we ever think of Reverend Horton as a family man again and as a healer? And we do feel this anger towards him. And I would really like for you to talk about how does Reverend Horton's background and role in the church really define how others defend and respond to his behavior? He was hard for me to write, to be honest. And I think over time, I had to make Miriam more angrier and I had to make him less monstrous. In the beginning, I was just like, no, no, no one's going to like him. Can't make him. He can't be all bad. And Miriam can't be all good. He's gone unquestioned this whole time. Ever since he was 18, he could do this thing and they make him this big person. He's, got, he's gotten bigger and bigger. There's more power. There's more clout. There's more responsibility. He builds this brand new church and people keep coming and coming and coming. And he's, he's so high on that power. And the ways in which then that power goes unchecked for him because no one is saying, have you thought about this? Or, you know, no one's doing that or saying that to him. And so he gets lost in some ways in the power that they've granted him. And then he becomes victim to it. So for Miriam and witnessing the act and switching was because she was so tentative after the previous summer. So it's like, I can say that that was an accident. Maybe he didn't know. That was a kid, but maybe he didn't know. But she's really anxious about that. And then this one is like, oh no, he knew. My dad, someone I didn't know my dad could be, and he is that person. But for Samuel, one of the big defining moments for him when he shifts, when he's confronted by Micah's father, what for him disloyalty looks like, when his powers that he's known are not what they should be, when he's called into question publicly, when Deacon Johnson calls him out publicly, that's what he can't have. And that's when Samuel breaks. And we see it earlier. We see we see the moments of him being really unsure on the revival circuit. We see him privately grappling with this thing that I think that Miriam is thinking to be true. And we watch him. What does this mean? If, if I am this person, what does it mean if I can no longer do this thing that they've said I can do? And then when his home church pressures him and then they start to fall away, that for him is like he needs everything he can to kind of hold on and grab on. He becomes a shell of himself. And that's when the violence then starts to really increase because 
for someone like Sam, you have to rule somewhere and you have to be dominant somewhere and you have to let people listen to you and you have to be the powerful figure somewhere. And he can't do it in the church as much anymore. The violence that's ratcheted up with his family. You know, Miriam sees what happens to him. People are terrified of this man too, in the house and outside of the house. And he's been allowed to grow that way. And now they have to all deal with this thing that's been created. Interestingly, for a lot of people, when things like that happen, they go to church. Yeah. And he has nowhere to go. And there is a scene where he is preaching in a parking lot. He has gone back to a humble moment. And it is really interesting because churches are not just bricks and mortar. Church can be you sat in your room reading the Bible yourself, being outside in nature, going for walks. But I want to talk about these moments of solace and these moments of what we cling to when things like this, big question marks in our lives happen. And this then leads me to discover these things about ourselves sometimes early on in our life, sometimes much later in our life, but these abilities to, to do things that we perhaps were always predestined to do. And sometimes they happen in like an aha moment. And sometimes they just naturally seem to be something you start doing. But for Miriam, the healing, I actually feel like she was always meant to heal. And like you said, behind the scenes, she was healing with Hannah. I didn't question when she actually came into her healing powers because I didn't see her as anything else, as anyone else, because she was that healer. And I feel like we all have healing powers. One way or another, I feel like one of your major healing powers is writing stunning debuts. Whether it's comforting a friend during a breakup, whether it is giving a hug to a stranger who who needs it, which sadly we we can't do much of these days, volunteering at a soup kitchen, wherever it is, wherever you find these moments where you want to heal, where you, you feel that draw to heal. And I would really love to hear your thoughts because I feel like beautiful storytelling is in itself such a healing power. And I would love to know what do you consider your healing powers to be? The thing that I am at my core is compassionate, empathetic. And I think that in the world, I exude a ton of positivity. My healing powers are and in this in this strange place we're living now where you can't hug people, but like in the hug days, I am a hugger. I am a, I, I say hello to strangers. I am, I try to do right by people that I don't even know. I hold doors. I say hi to babies. I am, I'm that person. So I try to kind of be this compassionate, kind of empathetic person. I try to kind of know when people are struggling and try to help people who are struggling. And so that's probably that. And then a way that I kind of also deal with the stuff in my head as I write. It's a way that I process. I have felt such a sense of divine when I have a pen to paper, I'm on a computer and I'm not myself. I feel like something else is not in me and and stuff is coming through me and it's just coming down. And so that's how I feel. Um, That's how I get healed in lots of ways is by writing stuff down and by trying to make story and by trying to make sense of the world. Not by writing the world as I see it, but by kind of using fiction as a, as a, as a lens for me that often help, helps me see the world in a, in a realer way sometimes than, than reality does. And we are so grateful that you have this healing power and that you do what you do, Monica, because revival season is phenomenal and I loved it so much. And we have sadly come to the end, but I would love for you to imagine that your book has been placed on a shelf, Great Literature Frozen in Time, and I would love, love, love to know which books and authors you would want to sit alongside revival season on your shelf. This is such a question of kind of do I dare say these people that I love and respect and honor? But if I could pick my dream shelf to sit next to, 
there's there's not it's not an accent that I refer to Toni Morrison and Song of Solomon in in revival season. Toni Morrison is everything, was everything, still is. You know, like she is not here anymore, but her work still is. Song of Solomon is my favorite Toni Morrison novel, and so um, I was like, I gotta shout out Toni Morrison. So, um, Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon. I also think that there's a the awakening part for Miriam for me feels akin to um, Janie Crawford in Our Eyes Are Watching God. So I'd have some Zora Hurston next to it as well. Um, and then some of the modern stuff, some of my favorite things to read right now or favorite things that I have been reading. I love Justin Ward's Salvage the Bones is heartbreaking and amazing and beautiful and every good thing in the world. Probably throw it next to also one of my favorite recent books is Brit Bennett's The Vanishing Half. So those all would just kind of be sandwiched next to mine in my ideal case of I admire and respect these women so much. If I could do that, I would. I mean, I feel like that is not only a shelf that I would frequent over and over and over again, but like incredible black storytellers on one shelf. You couldn't ask for anything better. Like that's (laughs) phenomenal. And you're in such great company. And I will say that those authors are in great company with you as well. Cannot thank you enough for your time today. It has been so wonderful to talk to you, Monica. Congratulations on Revival Season. It is the debut to remember now and always. Before we go, I would love for you to let people know how they can get in touch with you. I'm on Instagram at, at mwarrenwest. And it's the same. It's Monica L. West at Twitter. You can follow my Facebook page, which is Monica West. It's an author page. Um, and then all my events, if you want to contact me, my website is monicawestwrites.com. Fantastic. And in the episode description, I will give links to where you can buy, get your butt to the bookstore, independent bookstores. Thank you, Monica. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all of your beautiful characters. Thank you for your beautiful story. And thank you for being you. Thank you so much. This is lovely. Thanks Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading.